As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me on Not a Monday is Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Not a Monday, it's a Thursday. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. Made a song out of that. You're welcome. You did, and it was like a, a very heavenly song, and I have to believe that that's the type of thing that only happens as we get closer to the end of the week. Mondays don't seem to bring that out of you. I was listening to the Smiths this morning, so I think that's where that, uh, <laughs> that voice came from, actually. Oh, that's a fun way to start the morning. No, thank you. I think I started with <laughs> the soundtrack to Bob's Burgers is how I began my day. There you go. Oh. That's that's a way to get things so going. Hang on. Why, because you're watching the show or because you have that on your like Spotify? Yes. <laughs> that, okay. is, that is my answer. I have the soundtrack on Spotify and I'm watching the series as well. It is one of my... I, it took me a really long time to get into it, uh, but I think I started watching it like two months ago and now I'm on the final season, I think. It's a good show. I'm a fan. I've not seen it, but I like Archer, and it's the same voice actor, isn't it? It is, it is, and it's very musical, uh, but there are definitely some Archer-esque jokes, but it's a wholesome show at the same time. It's like, I think I I explain it as it's half Simpsons, half Family Guy, but airs on the side of Simpsons. Like, it's a lot of, like, people are generally nice on that show, put it that way. That really skews towards the Ryan Bailey demographic. I it really does. Out. It really does. I, I, I'm, I'm a very big fan, and I like a lot of the people involved. But we're not here to talk about TV, though we've already done that. Oh. We're here to answer listener questions and to talk about Project Big Picture, which is no longer a thing unless you're Manchester United and Liverpool, in which case it could still be a thing, and it will come once again. Uh, but we are going to get to, I think, 10 or so listener questions, some submitted via the website, some via Twitter. But I'm excited for Ryan to have a go at, at making sense of all of the many queries from our listeners i shall try my best i'm just picturing taylor in 20 30 years time maybe longer talking to the grandkids there was a time for five days when project big picture was all we talked about (laughs) all across the land it did feel that way right it felt like it it kind of took (laughs) off it was a leaked document uh and then now here we are where maybe we won't be talked about that much more but it was a moment in time right it was a moment in time and that's what we're here for it is indeed. Should we get into it? Should we get <laughs> into the question it. about it? Let's do it. Uh, yes, we did have the opening question from Nick Gillick. Uh, is Project Big Picture as evil as it sounds? We'll get to the 
evil or not evil nature of it in a moment. Let's talk about what it was in and of itself for people who haven't been paying as much attention or avoided it entirely because who cares about the Premier League? Essentially, (laughs) it was a plan headed by the English Football League chairman Rick Perry uh, in collaboration with leading clubs Man United and Liverpool, although by all accounts it sounds like Man United and Liverpool were the kind of like the originators of this plan, but it was essentially a way to finance lower league, uh, like the like championship league one, league two football in England to make sure that there was sort of f- their financials were secure given the COVID era. Same thing for the women's super league, but it would have come at the expense of giving the larger clubs, the so-called big six, a lot more power in the Premier League. Right now, the way the voting system works, there are 20 teams in the Prem. Basically, 14 teams have to vote on something for or vote in favor of something for it to pass. Everybody gets an equal share. That was uh, established when the Premier League was created in 92. They would have changed that to, I think, those like the nine longest serving clubs at any given moment would have been the clubs with the votes. And everybody else would have just had to kind of go along with it. Would have also meant a, a smaller league, things like that. But that's the gist. Have I left out anything major, Ryan? No, that's about right. Um, well, to, to address the fact that whether it's evil or not, I won't pass judgment on whether it is evil, but it was conceived in a hollowed out volcano in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so take, take of that what you will. I'll just, um, I'll just go through sort of maybe the positives and the negatives, if sure. you don't mind, Taylor, of this deal. So the positives, the immediate one was to help the EFL, the English Football League, the three leagues below the Premier League. Uh, there was an immediate £250 million uh, payment that was going to be given to those leagues, which would literally have saved some clubs who might go to the wall in the coming months. Clubs like Macclesfield, who already have done so and are starting up again. So that that would have been really, really, really useful money. And a sort of a a different way to uh, give the money to the lower leagues as well, which currently comes in parachute payments. When teams are relegated, they get X amount for the next few seasons after they're relegated. That instead would be given, uh, that money would instead be given to the EFL through 25% of net TV deals. The EFL would uh, sell its broadcast rights alongside the Premier League and would take 25% of the total proceeds, which apparently would mean they would get more money. So it's a more even distribution. For a fan of a League One club like myself, that would mean more money in my team's pocket. So I like that. Another couple of other good things were that they wanted to shrink the Premier League to 18 teams which I think would be positive in terms of the crowded fixture uh, list that we already have. I think, you know, the way it works in Germany is pretty is pretty good. There was also changes to the playoff system in that it would be more like the German system where the, let's, is it, would it be the 17th team in the Premier League would play the third, it, the play, you know. It would, would have would, been, it would be a, yeah, I think from what I read, so there's 18 teams. I think 17 and 18 would have been automatically relegated. Third bottom goes into a that's playoff with third, yeah. fourth, and fifth teams from the championship. Yeah, so that's more more like the German system, essentially, yeah. which I think is pretty exciting and you know adds a, adds a layer of peril and maybe a really big game at the end of the season when sometimes the Premier League doesn't end with a bang. Um, and also... Uh, Scrapping both the League Cup and the Community Community Shield. I don't think anyone would miss the Community Shield necessarily. You could argue some smaller teams would miss the League Cup, but I think once again that would help for the scheduling. The bad stuff, though, the main thing of which you covered there, Taylor, is that nine clubs would receive preferential voting rights and only six of those clubs would need to agree to have things pass, which essentially means the big six can do what they want. The other three clubs would be Everton, Southampton and West Ham, who have relatively arbitrarily been added to the big six mm-hmm. because of their longevity in the top flight. And, you know, 
the, the big problem there is that's not a democracy. It means that those big six or potentially the, the nine teams can veto new owners coming in. They could change rules. They could force things on, impose their will on uh, the other teams and the rest of the EFL, arguably. So that's very, very dangerous. So what you have to see here is as good. It is a good proposal in many ways, and there are many low league clubs who said it would have been good had it have not been unanimously uh, <laughs> uh, taken off the table. Yeah, but Manchester United and Liverpool aren't doing this because they're benevolent and want to give to soccer they want to provide for lowly clubs they're doing it because they get a huge huge benefit and that benefit is power and i think on balance it is a little bit more evil than it is not evil to answer the question all right i i I am somewhere in between i think i went into this having like read a little bit heard a little bit not paid as much attention to it expecting it to be a very nefarious dr evil-esque uh, approach as you sort of uh referenced earlier and i did see a lot of the positives specifically as you said from those lower level lower league teams and that was kind of who it seemed like they were bringing out to give good sound bites to talk about why it was a good plan they were like uh, Barry or not Barry, but uh, Barnsley were definitely the owner of Barnsley was out uh, flogging this one, saying it was a good idea. And I think also being practical about it. They they I forget which owner it was said like, yes, we know they're not doing it for the goodness of of their hearts. But like, ideally, we wouldn't have to rely on on well-moneyed clubs to make this thing happen. But the key point there was that the FA weren't really stepping in. The government, for their part, had said they had a bailout plan, but there were, I guess, a lot to be desired or a lot left to be decided. So. Mm. I think the clubs that were in favor of it knew they were kind of getting into into bed with teams that were not necessarily concerned about the smaller team's self-interest as much as their own, but they needed some money right now, and so they were willing to go along with it. That's about my read on that one. I think a lot of the issue, though, stems from, for me at least, that this was all done pretty much in secret. Uh, It sounds like Liverpool and Manchester United representatives of those two clubs had been kicking this one around for a couple years, according to reporting. Um, And that, I think, is a big sticking point for the other Premier League teams, that here's this plan that these two clubs have been kind of working up in relative secrecy. Then they bring in the EFL chairman, who, according to reports that he did not deny, he, uh, I think, is alleged to have said, and if they vote against it, then you six can just break away, you'll start your own league, and we'll see what happens with that. So it it sort of felt, I think, to a lot of Premier League teams, like you're trying to uh, minimize the size of the league, which is automatically going to take two of us out. Then you're trying to take away our voting rights at the expense of both ourselves and kind of enriching yourselves and giving you guys more control. And you're not really looking out for the interests of the league. And you have contingency plans for if we go against it. This doesn't feel like a plan to make things better. To some extent, I think for those clubs, it felt like a plan to give those big clubs a lot of money and complete control slash a breakaway league if that's what it came to. Yeah, and I should add that, by the way, the the, the- the the dropping of two teams going to 18 in the Premier League, the, the the teams that would suffer would be the ones at the very bottom because the entire system would go from 92 to 90. So two league teams would be oh, wow. kicked out. So that's not that's not great either. Um, but as we know, this has now been unanimously mm-hmm. dropped by the Premier League and won't go ahead in this iteration. But I think what's happened here is the cat's out of the bag in terms of the plans and the intentions of this, that, that money will be given to sort of save lower the lower echelons of the game and there's going to be a cost for that for perhaps the democracy of the league system we have i think we're going to see this kind of thing come up again but maybe in a more modified way maybe a little bit less power maybe a little bit less money here and there but i think we'll see 
something like this coming in because i think a, a change is a coming taylor i agree because i i do think i i stand by i think a major criticism of this for some of those premier league teams was simply that they were not consulted that it feels like this plan was kind of developed in a vacuum without input from other organizations i think yeah once you have some teams coming on board and maybe there's a little bit more power sharing maybe it's not quite so the big six teams have all the power i do think a lot of this becomes much more palatable uh, even little things like i forgive me if you've mentioned this but like scrapping the community shield and the carabao cup that is basically the efl saying yeah we know those competitions aren't really worth anything and they just take up time in the schedule but I think when you have these sort of things not done in a transparent way and you're not quite sure who is necessarily involved and for what reason, it then leads to a lot of speculation. And I've seen the idea that if you're trying to limit the number of Premier League fixtures, you're trying to get rid of the Carabao Cup, it stands to reason that you're trying to maybe change the fixture list so that you can then have Champions League games on the weekends or you can move the FA mm. Cup off the weekend into midweek and you kind of take away the importance of that. But it gives you more opportunities to play quote unquote, bigger games in front of a global audience. And I think then you start moving into those kind of conspiratorial elements. And that's where I think this, this was also destined to fail, because if you don't have transparency, I think it lends itself to a lot of speculation and what if and what could happen. And that is also going to make it almost a non-starter, which it in effect was. It was indeed. And as for it being a harbinger for a potential European breakaway, do you see that as a serious threat? I see that as a it's a, a, a more of just a threat of give us what we want or we'll maybe think about doing it. I don't think it's actually going to be realistic any time soon. I, I would agree with you except for this. Uh, having just done the Soccer 101 episode last week, if people want to hear it, they can, about the formation of the Premier League. It essentially, the abbreviated version is, comes about because the larger clubs in England at the time, the so-called Big Five or Six, uh, which like featured Everton uh, back then, that um, it was... The idea was they didn't like the control of the EFL. They wanted their own uh, like way to kind of conserve their money and not spread it all around. And then the FA mm-hmm. comes in, they jump ship, and now you move away from the EFL. So it's strange to me that this would almost be the Premier League in some ways returning to the EFL. It was the plan. Uh, and, yeah. and that, like, I guess there is precedent for it. So it's possible that they would have been like, all right, we're leaving and we're going to take all that money with us. We're going to start our own league. I, I think it was probably a little bit of a, a like a bluff. Like we can do that if that's what you want to do. It is the ultimate right. bargaining chip. I don't know if they would have done it, but I do think that with how much we hear about European Super Leagues and the moves for that with other large clubs around Europe, I always think there's a grain of truth that teams are trying to find ways to make that possible. And especially because the two teams that we're talking about, Man United and Liverpool, are American-owned. They're used to closed systems with the other teams that they're involved with. They're used to not having to have promotion relegation, and they're able to sort of keep their teams and keep printing money without necessarily having to be the most competitive. Less so, that's John Henry, more so the Glazers. Uh, But I also think that probably is part of it, that anytime you can get a system that allows them to not have to spend as much to remain as competitive, I think they're going to jump at that. We'll march day and night through the big cooling tower. They have the European places, but we have the power. <laughs> it's a very musical episode, and I'm glad because I can't that was sing. Whimsical. We know you can. Uh, so I'm happy for you to do all the singing. I'm happy for you to continue to talk about the Project Big Picture situation if you'd like. But I think I have said all I need to say. I think we've answered the question. Stamp it evil. 
Stamp it evil. All right. Uh, we have got many more listener questions to get to. Let's do that now. Let's start with Guy Yedwab, who I think has back-to-back questions to get us going. The first one is about Diego Simeone. If Diego Simeone were to leave Atletico Madrid, what club or national team would he have the best chance of success with, given their current squad? Which clubs or national teams would most readily embrace his philosophy as the new identity of their team? This got me thinking, Taylor. We know a lot about Diego Simeone's style. We know he likes a press. We know he likes you know a quick counter-attack. We know he likes very solid defensiveness and sitting yep. games through with defensive solidarity. We know that he tends to like to let the opponent have the ball. We know that every clearance of the ball is essentially a counter-attack opportunity and there's lots of quick transition, blah, blah, blah. When you put it like that, that's the ethos of many, many other clubs, isn't it? And it, I think it when you put it... When you put it like that, his his style, and he's not married to four four two or anything like that. He can be a bit malleable. Uh, I think he could make a difference at many big clubs. I think you could see him, for example, at Real Madrid, or I think you could see him do a job at Paris Saint Germain. Certainly, he has been linked to Manchester United in the past, for example. I think he could give them solidarity. What I think he really offers, though, Taylor, and this leads me to my answer to the question, he offers like that underdog mentality. He creates the us against them. He creates the we're the little guys, we're gonna we're the David, they're the Goliath. I think that's the mentality he creates. I think that's the difference he brings to a squad. Which brings me to my answer, Arsenal. Interesting. A team, if any team, that needs a mentality change. I think if he came in and just imposed himself with the force of his personality and imposed his tactics, which I think could very very well translate to that Arsenal squad. That would be a big difference maker. That would they would go, they would see greater improvements than any of those other aforementioned big clubs I've mentioned. That is my proposal. How do you see, how do you see it? I, I I agree with some of what you said, but where I disagree, I, I think factors into why I would not have put Arsenal on my list. Why I did not put Arsenal on my list because I think of <laughs> Simeone, and I am not an Atleti fan, so I, I'm sure there will be people who take issue with this. I agree with a lot of what you said, but when I think of them fundamentally, I think of the team that knocks out Liverpool in the Champions League last year. They're not really doing that because they're playing pressing, attacking soccer that's really exciting. They're playing, as you said, very disciplined, defensive. We don't need the ball. We will punish you on the counterattack. We will make you overcommit, and we will find a way through. And I think that can certainly work, but I also think it is a style of football that, with a lot of clubs wouldn't be as palatable because you're going to get results, but it doesn't mean you're going to be attractive. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to blow the other teams out of the water consistently. And with a team like Real Madrid, I think of how often there's frustration with, we're not supposed to play on the counter. Jose Mourinho's system, we're not supposed to be a counterattacking team. We're supposed to be the team that dictates the style of play. And to some extent, I think that is a thing that you'd have to consider. And so, like Chelsea right now, the team that he's long been linked with, I don't know if it really makes that much sense because they have so much attacking firepower. I don't know if they have like the defensive solidity that he would want. So to some extent, right. I feel like that wouldn't work, whereas that, to me, is a very logical club to put him. Where I did put him was with three different teams. The first one is a team that already sort of plays on the counter, on the break, is happy not to have the ball. That would be Wolves. So if, say, Nuno got signed uh, by somebody else or somebody came in with a big offer for him, I don't know if it's necessarily a promotion to go from Atleti to Wolves, other than that there is more money. Um, but I think that would be fine. I think Wolves fans would not be bummed out by that style of play. I think Milan Can I jump fans, in, Taylor? Mm-hmm. It is It is not a promotion to move from Madrid to Wolverhampton. Very fair. 
very good point. <laughs> I think I just always think of the amount of money he would have. Uh, not to say that he's necessarily hurting with Atleti, but I don't think they've reinforced the way he would have liked. But I think he could go in and play his style and fans wouldn't hate it, given what they're used to with what Wolves have been doing. So that's one of my shouts. Aside from the Madrid to Birmingham comparison, uh, what do you make of that one? I am getting to your Arsenal point in a moment, I promise. I think I actually like it even better than my Arsenal okay. one because I think that's a really good fit for the squad and you're completely right. That would translate pretty well. Can I just jump? I'll just say one sure. more thing about Arsenal, which I missed mm-hmm. out, which I think because he's a, he's a dog for life, not just for Christmas, is uh, Diego Simeone. I think I might have just taken a British advertising campaign and have, which makes no sense to the listeners. I apologize there. I'm assuming I'm that means you're, is, not, you're not getting a puppy for Christmas and then getting rid of it in like mid-February when it's no longer adorable. Is that about it? Correct. Yeah. He's a, he a manager who stayed at Atleti long term so far. He, he's mm-hmm. managed, what, four or five other clubs, but he's, 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 he's been there a long time. And that kind of reminds me of the Wenger-esque um, period of time that he spent at Arsenal as well. So I think they appreciate a manager who can stay yeah. for, for the long run. And that's why I feel like he would that's be suitable because he'd have that similar level of loyalty. Please continue. I dare you to beat Wolves because that was a really good shout. Uh, the only other ones I thought of were a club like, say, AC Milan, who obviously have the name recognition, haven't had as much success. I thought about somebody like Juve or Inter, but both of them have invested so heavily, and we saw what happened with Maurizio Sarri, where he goes there. If you're playing an even nominally defensive style, I think Juve fans are not going to be okay with it. So I don't think they would love Simeone. But Milan, that does feel like a, 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 a sort of system that would fit they wouldn't mind so much i think there is a good number or good amount of talent there but i wasn't as excited about wolves the other one that i was sort of fascinated about and i would wonder what you think uh because i've talked plenty would he do well would he succeed at manchester united if he were given free reign to do whatever he wanted with that current team i think he'd be better than the current situation without a doubt (laughs) That is a very diplomatic answer. What I would worry about is the similar reasons that you worry about him going to Chelsea in that if he demands defensive solidarity, do they have the uh, staff to make that happen right now? I don't think... Yeah. I'm not sure there's the coach... All the coaching in the world could make them rock solid at the back right now. That that was... Also, one other thing is that he did... Wasn't he the one who was the subject of David Beckham's kick out at France 98 or was that Ooh, you are correct. I think it was Simeone it was so he might have bad blood with Man United fans you never know interesting alright alright that's a good point yeah I, I did think about like the hallmarks of Atleti and it's two very disciplined central midfielders it is a very smart centre back who's capable of leading the line but making heroic plays Diego Godin uh, Jimenez as well I don't know if I see as many of those with Man United so that made it more challenging I think from an international level, it's tough to say with like teams right now because we're in such a state of transition. I looked at it from a broader perspective of teams that would be okay if he came in and basically established a disciplined defensive system where you are defending, frustrating your opponent, looking for counterattacking opportunities. A number of different teams, I think, who are sort of not quite at that top tier level but are somewhere below them, for example, Chile right now. I think that's a thing that I wouldn't be surprised if they excelled at, was being disciplined, fighting you, causing problems, and then finding a way to make things happen. Ecuador the same, Uruguay, even the United States to some extent, I think could do with Diego Simeone just having a very disciplined defensive approach. I think players would buy in, and he's also quite terrifying. So there's that, too. Uh, Argentina? That is a really interesting one. 
to see Diego Simeone attempt to manage Lionel Messi, I, um, I want that to happen. That's it. That's the answer just because I want to see what would happen with all of those personalities. And this is Diego Simeone who has, again, had lots of or a lot of money compared to, say, a League Two team, but not as much money as the big, big, big teams, essentially inheriting a squad that is a big, big, big team. How do you deal with it? Oh, I want that to happen so bad now. Yeah. I you think made me excited. Only, surely, if, if this was real in real life, that would be the only national team you'd go for anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. I think so. That's also yeah. a very logical point. And I think whenever <laughs> we hit the logical point, that's a good place to end it. But I'm now very excited for Diego Simeone at <laughs> Wolves. I, would, I think Arsenal could be really interesting. I, I think they're, they're all in a Mikel, Mikel Arteta. But if that went south, maybe they would go the opposite way and bring in Diego Simeone. So I like all I of those things. Just to, yeah, just to conclude on Arsenal, mm-hmm. I just think that they would see the greatest improvement. So like Wolves would get better. They'd all get arguably get better uh, under Simeone. But I think Arsenal will see the biggest jump. They would go from well when when he took over Atleti, what they were mid mid to lower table, were they not? Yeah, so, that sounds about right. And he 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 really kind of turned them around in that respect. So I could see a similar uptick for Arsenal. Well, then the only solution here is to have him manage Arsenal part time, Wolves part time, and Argentina part time, and we'll see which one does the best. That is the sensible thing to do, correct? Obviously, obviously. Uh, And if that were to happen, maybe we could utilize today's sponsor to catalog the events. We do have many more listener questions, but first we're going to talk about... This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Artifact. We have talked about Artifact plenty in the past. It's the company that helps you make a personal podcast episode about anything you want. And right now, they are inviting you to suggest topics for Artifacts. They want to know uh, what you think could be good. Isn't that right, Ryan? That is. There is, in fact, a competition to uh, have a free artifact made if you come up with the goodest answer. The goodest answer? The goodest goodest answer. The most goodly, I think it is. You can head over to heyartifact.com and you can find out even more about Artifact as a service. But if you go to heyartifact.com slash TSS contest and tell us what you'd like to make an artifact about, they're going to draw a random winner to do a single interview artifact about that particular topic. What an offer. It does not have to be the most unique or amazing idea ever. It just has to be a story or relationship that matters to you. And I, I do think, like, I, for some reason, I'm going to connect this to when we do Soccer 101, that I always have these very broad, wide-ranging ideas about what would be a really good episode. And it tends to be that, like, what is the most, like, oh, I don't really know how that works. And then I explain it. That works really, really well. You don't have to have some incredibly innovative idea for this one. It's mostly about a thing that, that resonates for whatever reason that you can explain. They want to hear about it at Hey Artifact dot com slash tss contest uh and i think if you want to just order one of your own that's also totally fine you could do that i've done that we've done that for the show you go to heyartifact.com and you use the promo code tss to get 40 dollars off your artifact order uh but going to heyartifact.com slash tss contest allows you to bypass that entirely potentially if they like your idea 
HeyArtifact.com, where George will do an Ira Glass impression for you. <laughs> that is their new official catchphrase. Thank you to George for doing that impression, and thank you to Artifact for sponsoring <laughs> this episode of the Total Soccer Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Small businesses have unique needs, and despite the, cer- the current uncertainty, not the certain uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals, which you already know. It's got more than 690 million members worldwide, Taylor. I actually looked up earlier today the previous chairman of Wimbledon FC, a much, much maligned figure, who's on there in his current role. What is his current role? He's he's a head of some financial thing I don't want to give publicity to <laughs> at fair, the moment. He's doing quite he's doing quite well, unfortunately. Maybe because of his position on LinkedIn. And you know, if you want to do quite well and move up in the world, LinkedIn jobs is a very, very good place to do it. LinkedIn.com slash jobs if you want to check it out for yourself. If you have a LinkedIn profile, it tailors all the job offerings to you. Uh, your experience on uh, based on your LinkedIn uh, input and your location as well. It's really, really good. So very, very, very good for candidates, very, very good for the small businesses who want to place a position and find those qualified candidates. There we are. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash TSS. Again, that's linkedin.com slash TSS to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's listener question spectacular. I'm going to give it that extra flourish. Ryan, what's the next question? I think we're going to go. Should we go back to Guy Yedwipe for the back to back? Let's do it. B2B. B2B Guy, here's your second question. Of players whose parents were huge stars or legendary coaches, which ones had the best shot of matching the legend of their parents? I got some ideas, Taylor. You want to shoot first? I do. I want to clarify something before we get all of your many, many tweets, because oftentimes when I do listener questions, I will like skim the question, think I know what they're asking, research the whole thing, and then realize I did not read the question in depth. And I want to emphasize which ones have the best shot of matching the legend of their parents, not which ones are very good or who are some kids who also have uh, parents who played soccer, because I am fully ready for people to message us about why we didn't include Timothy Weah. He could be very, very good. He is not going to be George Weah good because George Weah won the Ballon d'Or and uh, is incredibly good and one of my favorite players and is now president. That doesn't really matter the president part, but I just want to stress <laughs> that we're talking about players who uh, like had very famous uh, parents and who could maybe achieve that level of fame. So Taylor, only... If you want to read the question even deeper, which mm-hmm. ones have the best shot of matching the legends of their parents? <laughs> not, exceeding. not exceeding it, not getting worse than it, exactly matching it. So it's a challenging question. I might not go that far with it. But like <laughs> the reason why I stress this clarification is because, for example, Erling Holland is a player that I wanted to include. But like, is Alfinger Holland that famous? I don't think so. He's not really a legend. So other than getting his knee broken by Roy Keane, I don't think that makes him legendary. So Ooh, the really? two. 
<laughs> not, I mean, not the way he probably would have wanted. I have two nominees. One has a question mark next to it. The obvious one in my mind is uh, Gio Reyna because mm-hmm. Claudio Reyna, incredibly successful at international level, captain of the national team. Danielle Egan, Gio's mom, uh, six caps for the U.S. women's national team. So an established pedigree, but I think to some extent Gio Reyna – in terms of a global awareness, is maybe already above the legend of his parents. I think maybe not to American fans, and certainly not American fans who grew up with Claudia Reyna, not quite yet, but I do think where he is playing, how he is playing, and the stage that he is currently on, to some extent, I don't think either of his parents necessarily met that level. That's my feeling about that one. Do you have thoughts on Gio Reyna? I think Gio Reyna is the most correctest answer okay. in this uh, in this uh, in this All question, right. <laughs> as you say, because Claudio Reyna. I think if you look at his honor roll, I think the Scottish Premier League is the biggest thing on there. I have reason to be assured that Gio Reyna is going to win more than the Scottish Premier League in his career. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you want me to run through some of my, my yeah, nominees? Please. Please. So the ones I, I did exclude for reasons you mentioned earlier were players who have very, very legendary pens. Enzo Zidane, for example, yeah. not even playing in the same position. He's not going to exceed. Timothy Ware is not going to exceed George Ware. Jonathan Klinsman, same situation, not going to, as a goalkeeper, not going to uh, exceed his, his father. Marcus Turam as well, probably yeah. the same situation. I have picked out some players who you could argue very much already exceeded their parents. Tiago I- Alcantara whose mm-hmm. uh, father, Mazzinho, played for Brazil, was in the 94 World Cup. Uh, Paolo Maldini, should we say he exceeded Cesare Maldini? They were both pretty legendary. Yeah. I think we can give him that. We're not going to give Daniel Maldini or Christian Maldini, Paolo's sons, I th- I the thought benefit about- of... I thought about Daniel Maldini because he's he's very young, he's he's doing okay with Milan, but at the same time... He would have to be a, a legend. He would have to reach that status yeah. to be to like reach his father's level, and I just don't think he's he's going to get there. I don't feel comfortable speculating that he might put it that way. Yeah, his father and his grandfather were both very much mm-hmm. uh, legends, and I'm not sure that either of those two. Uh, good luck to them, but I'm not sure they're reaching that level. Justin Cliver. That's is, yeah. Is I another one on I don't think is going to get yeah. up to uh, the the, the climate, uh, thing as well. But uh, of, of players who've already reached it, Chicharito is another one. Chicharo, his dad, yeah. who um, obviously was a big player, and his father-in-law, Chicharo's father-in-law, played in the 1954 World Cup. They got a, a three-generation thing going on there. Chicharito has arguably exceeded it. My top three of the actual answer to this question was Giorena being the most important one. I did put Erling Haaland on there because I consider Alfinger Haaland. Uh, although obviously okay. played in a very different position to Erling Haaland, but you know Premier League player, uh, quite yeah. famous in literary circles <laughs> due to Roy Keane's uh, literary contributions. The other one I would put in the three is, and I don't know, maybe I'm stretching legendary to discuss this player, but Liam Delap, seventeen-year-old oh, Liam yeah. Delap, uh, who I think will exceed and maybe arguably is getting there already to exceed Rory Delap, who is. A journeyman player. We'll talk about journeymans later, probably in this episode. Uh, but Liam Delap at 17 has already played at three levels for England. He's at Manchester City. I think his trajectory is heading in a superior. Superior is the wrong word. Mm-hmm. In a better, in a higher level than yeah. his father. I, I think that is an outstanding answer, man. I think Reina, as as you said, is like the kind of consensus pick here. But yes, that Liam DeLapp is such a great shout. I remember seeing him come on. We, we talked about it on the show. I was like, what? Roy DeLapp as a kid? Yeah. When did that happen? Um, <laughs> and, but you're absolutely right that though Roy DeLapp like, did have a, a successful career and does have that sort of legendary mythos around him because of the throw-in and because of that Stoke team, 
like, but at the same time, if you're playing for Man City, if you're already getting minutes, there is an idea that you would then have more like on on the pitch success at a at a higher level. I think that's a great shout, Ryan Bailey. I'm very excited Thanks. about that. Thanks. Yeah, man. I had one more name that I, I'm wondering what you would make of this one because the only other thing I could think of was Casper Schmeichel, who it's a debatable one because Peter Schmeichel is very famous for both his time with Manchester United and with the the Danish national team. So Schmeichel, I think Casper uh, would have to have a, at least some more success, I think, at an international level, or maybe get another move to a larger club where he has more success that way, unless Leicester win the Premier League again, in which case maybe they're at the same level. But that was the only other one I could think of. I will ask you, Taylor, two questions. How many trebles has Casper Schmeichel won? And how many commercials has he done in which he pretended to be a Danish pig farmer? Because... Peter's uh, done both of those things. I, I will answer the first one seriously, zero. And the second one, I will just say, hopefully a lot. I really hope he's done a lot of those commercials. <laughs> there was a Reebok campaign back in the 90s where it was, what would soccer players be doing if they didn't have their Reebok boots? So Ryan Giggs was selling daffodils on the on the road. Um, and Peter Schmeichel was a pig farmer. And it, there was a few other players. It was a very entertaining campaign they did. And uh, if like you were it. of my age and of my geographic persuasion you probably know what i'm talking about <laughs> all right but uh gio reyna and then liam delap i think are our, are our official nominees and i am good with that ryan are you Boom. good to move on to our next question let's all right christian ott what are other nations like the united states that have a handful of incredible young players that are not currently or never have been a superpower a world superpower canada and norway come to mind but was wondering if there are others to be aware of uh i have two teams one of which christian already mentioned ryan what about you i think this is the hardest question we've been we're going to be asked today i agree uh, I really struggle with this one because I think USA is really a very good candidate for this with all the talent they've got and all the talent they've got abroad at the moment. Norway, I'm not 100% sure because outside of Martin Odegaard and Erling Haaland, I've is got that a list for you. Are they a handful? I've got a list. I've got a clarification first. I think I said I need to do a like catch-up show or we need to do a catch-up show in which we go through everything that has happened because – I was definitely, and I'm admitting that this is a very foolish thing, I was definitely sort of forgetting that Euro qualification has already happened. So when we last talked about Norway, I think I was like, yeah, they could make the Euros, and that's going to be exciting. We got a number of different emails and tweets saying they cannot make the Euros. They were definitely eliminated by Serbia. So clarification there. But with that not in mind, I will add, I did look up Norway because, to your point, I have wondered, like, is it is it that they're really good, or is it just Holland and Odegaard? And maybe Sanderberga. There are other ones. There's uh, Jens Petrhalga, I think is how you pronounce it. 21-year-old uh, striker who now plays for AC Milan. You've got Odegaard, I mentioned. Berga, I mentioned. Holland, I mentioned. Christopher Ager, 22 for Celtic. Alexander Sorloth, 24 for Leipzig. You don't have a lot of like 17, 18, 19-year-olds coming through. But I think they do have a decent amount of young players. Do they have the same level as, say, the United States? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my only nomination, Taylor, and I think it's possibly a weak one for reasons I'll explain, is Ukraine. And the reason I picked them is because they were the winners of the 2019 FIFA Under-20 World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, they got to that place. They, they beat uh, the USA in the group stages. They beat Italy and Colombia to get through the knockout stages. If, if you're going to look at young players coming through, that is arguably a very good metric for measuring who are the up-and-comers and who are going to be a strong uh, international squad coming through. Now, I'm not saying that bears uh, <laughs> that theory bears testing because uh, the winners of the Under-20 World Cup haven't always gone on to win the Big Boy World Cup in the years to come. But, I mean... <sighs> 
that that is the best answer I can give here because this one really stumped me. And I look at the players on the squad who were part of that under twenty squad. There's no household names among them. Most, the majority of them play for either Shakhtar Donetsk or Dynamo Kiev. The majority of these players. Let's bear in mind that you know uh, Shakhtar Donetsk haven't been able to play at home since 2014. That a lot of these players have had a very unique experience growing up in Ukraine and playing in Ukraine in a, essentially a war-torn country with Russian separatists taking over the Donbass arena and Shakhtar don't even play at home. So that's beside the point. But my point being, this is my answer and I think you're going to have a better one. No, I honestly, I don't. And I think that's kind of my answer because I looked at Ukraine as well. I think you're right. It's really challenging because with the lack of international games that we've had, I think some of those players would probably have come through, but I looked at the squad that beat Spain this week, and it's mostly veterans. I think that's probably yeah. because we haven't had as many games, so it, it is tough to answer from that uh, aspect. I had Ecuador as my other nominee uh, from talking to Felipe yesterday. We talked about, a lot about their youngsters coming through. The most promising ones would be Leonardo Campagna, who's a 20-year-old striker. He's on loan from Wolves uh, in Portugal. Jose Cifuentes, a 21-year-old for LAFC. And then Gonzalo Plata, a 20-year-old winger for Sport. I think I said that he had all the familiar symptoms of like a 40 to 50 million pound transfer a year from now. I stand by that. But again, we're kind of looking for names. We're maybe reaching for answers. And I think that's kind of why this answer is question is hard is because the answer really is no. I don't think that there are many other teams or national teams right now that haven't already been superpowers that don't like have this level of players playing for this many teams and are having the success they are. I think it's kind of an unprecedented time for the United States. It kind of leads into the next question, if you're okay with that. I am, I've, but I think this is a, the, the fact that this has stumped us is a good thing, Taylor, yeah. because it proves that the USA in four to five years' time are going to break into that hegemony and are going to be right up there with this squad. I mean, I, absolutely. It's nailed on guaranteed. We don't even have to worry guaranteed. about anything, especially if Diego Simeone takes over or becomes Greg Berhalter's <laughs> assistant. That feels likely. Uh, more likely <laughs> oh, is that yeah. we'll get to this question. Richard Rolson, uh, has there ever been a comparable time in history when the number of American players who were playing for top flight European teams as there are now? Uh, and do you believe the number of Americans represented on top European teams will continue to grow over the next few years? My very brief answer to this is no and yes, because we have had Americans play in Europe. We've certainly at various points had like a, a lot of Americans in Europe, but have we had them at the caliber of club we, we've we've had? No. Have we had as many young players poised to break through at the exact same time? No. It's crazy to me that Borussia Dortmund have Christian Pulisic come through, sell him on for 70 million whatever, and already have Gio Reyna coming through. It, it, there are sort of pipelines that I don't think have ever existed in U.S. soccer history so that we have consistent Americans coming through, and I think it will continue to be the case. And that's where I say again, I don't know many other teams that aren't already superpowers that sort of have that line of talent coming through, and I think Mm. key to it is undervalued line of talent so that people will continue to buy those players, will continue to look to the American market for cheap options that can be trained the, the way the teams want them to play, and then do just that. So to some extent, I'm very... Like, without meaning to, I stumbled into being optimistic about the U.S. national team and the number of youngsters coming through. Was that a mistake? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, you said it like you shouldn't have done it. I think you should do it. I think that's a more, legitimate I, position I, to have. 
I, I think it's just I feel like I think I am more comfortable with cynicism to some extent. And, uh, and that's where like Daryl is always very positive. I'm like, this is happening. This is happening. I'm like, well, we'll see. We'll see. Because I don't I don't love the idea of like, yes, this guy's going to do it. And then it doesn't end up working out. I feel a little bit foolish when I just kind of jumped into the hype of things. And yet in answering this question, I really did. I looked at lots of different federations, lots of different national teams. I went through rosters and it just kept feeling like I am trying to make an argument for why this team has this many good players the way the United States does. And if I think it were switched around, I would be, if Canada had the number of American players that the United States does right now, I'd be like, man, Canada, they should be optimistic. They're going to make the World Cup. They're going to be great. Like, I think it's just, I'm a little bit uncomfortable because I never want to jinx it. I never want to be like, yep, we're good now. We're going to be the best. It feels very (laughs) uncomfortable to me. I think to certainly answer the second part of the question, Taylor, uh, the believe the number of Americans represented on top European teams will continue to grow over the next few years. I think absolutely yes. And I think it's a clear testament to the shift towards placing more emphasis on the academy system throughout the US uh, th- throughout, and even throughout mm-hmm. MLS teams. I, I have the privilege of working reasonably closely with an MLS academy and to see the work they put in, to see the professionalism they have, to see the levels that they're reaching and the, and the sort of structures that are being put in place. MLS Next just coming in uh, relatively recently, for example, is a bit of a, of a, a, bit of a shift in the way things are done. It it's just represents this shift away from you know the college super draft and that kind of thing thing that seems more and more quaint with every passing year towards going younger and looking and having a real grassroots academy system and i think the longer the the more the further that goes down the line the more as you say uh european clubs are going to look to the u.s for good value and you know 300 and something million population here with the growing academy system that the, the math just works out it's going to it's going to continue to grow and i'm really excited by it and i'm excited by the investment that major uh, American soccer clubs are putting in at, at youth level. I'm excited that you're excited, Ryan. That's all that Yay. matters. I do. I did want to ask you because I don't think we've talked much about like your perspective on the national team, but more specifically, I wanted to ask you about like the early days of Americans going to Europe. Uh, do you have any memories of, of of Americans coming through or playing in the Premier League or playing in England? And and like I'm just wondering who the first ones were that sort of kind of came to your awareness, or was it later on with some of the bigger names? The 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 one that springs to mind was a big one. Uh, I started watching soccer like very religiously in the and started going to games every week in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. It was Casey Keller, uh, ah. who um, I was. Millwall was basically one of the closest teams to where I grew up. So and my a lot of my friends are Millwall fans. So he, you know knew of him there. And then he went to Leicester when Leicester and my team Wimbledon were battling a lot in big cups and stuff. Like he was always in goal. And then he went to Tottenham as well. So he was the big. He was like the main American fixture. Like John Harkes was a little bit before my time. But if you if you the immediate answer to that question always Casey Keller. So I, I love that answer, first of all, because Casey Keller is legend. But second of all, because it also, I think, fits my narrative of like American soccer kind of you have the 94 World Cup, MLS gets going and then you start to have it growing a little bit. And for the most part, though, it remains like the U.S. is eh, they're whatever, but they're goalkeepers. They make very good goalkeepers. So I like the idea that Casey Keller was the introduction and probably I'm going to guess drove home that point of like American goalkeepers. You can sign those. I wouldn't sign any of their outfield players. I'm happy to say that that feels to be changing and teams seem more comfortable with that these days. And bear in mind. In the mid-90s, Casey Keller was quite exotic. His name was Casey. Oh, it's so American. <laughs> He's not called John. Ooh. How exciting. 
that does Things remind me of like, quite as a it, that was only in the infancy of Arsene Wenger coming to the Premier League and sort of transforming yeah. the multiculturalism of everything. So that was <laughs> that was quite exotic to have an American in the Premier League at that time. I always enjoy Arsene Wenger, the innovator, being like, maybe don't drink and smoke immediately before the game. And they're like, oh, that makes a difference. Like being able to breathe and not be drunk. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Tell us more, Professor. <laughs> All right, so uh, optimistic times for the United States. Uh, I'm going to say optimistic times for Robert Cordova because we're going to answer his questions next. Uh, We've all heard the term journeyman player, uh, but how do you define that and what are the Total Soccer Show's favorite journeymen or journeywomen players? I didn't realize until looking into this, Taylor, that the, the, the phrase journeyman has a different definition in the US and the UK. Did you know this? I did not. So in American English, apparently, I didn't know this until today, a journeyman or journeywoman is an athlete who's technically competent but unable to excel. Interesting. Whereas, in, certainly in my parlance, and in UK parlance, and in soccer parlance, it's a player who plays for a lot of clubs, is literally a journeyman, journeys from mm-hmm. club to club. So I would say maybe if you're eight, over eight or nine clubs, then you're a journeyman. Does that sound about right as a definition? I think I had six to seven. I, I, I err on the side of your definition, yeah. But basically mine is like six to seven clubs at least, moments of near greatness, flirtations with success, but like not quite reaching that next level where they became the marquee player for this team for seven seasons. It's usually like had a big moment, we're okay, didn't quite make it, got loaned out. Then they moved two years later. They moved, went to that club, they moved a year later. Like you don't have the stability and long-term success necessarily. That's that's kind of where right. I am with it. Not surprisingly, well, mine was longer than yours. <laughs> I've put together my nomination for my three favorite journeymen, the first of which might defy the success uh, notion there, Taylor. Nicholas Anelka. Okay. He played for 12 clubs, he, including Paris Saint-Germain twice. There's like 13 contracts, I guess you could call that. Um, who won quite a lot of things, didn't he, Nicholas Anelka? He was very good. He... Uh, you know, won lots of individual words, won the Champions League with Real Madrid, won the Premier League with Arsenal and also with Chelsea. Uh, I think got to the, he was in the squad for the 2008 when Chelsea were in the Champions League final as well. Uh, done pretty well with uh, the national team as well. What I love about Nicholas Anelka is he's obviously a journeyman because he's such a difficult person to get along with. Yep. Famously, someone who is a little bit antsy and a little bit, uh, you know, not, maybe not the team player one would dream of. So that seems to be the motivator for, for Nicholas Anelka uh, moving around. Do you want to hear my other two nominees? I do, I do, please. Freddie Adu. Oh. Or an American one for you there. <gasps> Freddie Adu, who played 14 clubs he played for in total. Um Five loan spells included in those 14 clubs. The thing that hit me so hard, and this hits me hard every time I look at it, look into Freddie Adu, he's only 31 years old. He turned 31 this year. He did. this me. And I believe he just signed for somebody new. Ersterlund? <laughs> Ersterlund? <laughs> I, yeah. I see you've, you've, been, you've been practicing that one, have you? He's uh, back in Scandinavia, is Freddie Adu. Uh, he's with Ersterland, so good luck to him there. After being with the, the Las Vegas Lights was, I believe, his last contract. So he's had a little bit of time out, um, settled, uh, recovered from his time in Las Vegas, shall we say, back in Europe. We'll see how that one works out. Interesting. My final one is the ultimate journeyman, and there can be no comebacks. You ready? I'm ready. Lutz Fannenstiel, the that legendary... 
goalkeeper yep. who has had no fewer than 27 clubs that he's played for. He is the only player to have played on uh, played with all six FIFA confederations, played within all six FIFA confederations. He has been around a little bit, and uh, he, I, I believe we've both uh, had some time spent with Lutz. He's, he's very lovely, and he's a bit mad, and he's fantastic, and he's got a very, very good story. He's got a good book, and he's now um technical director with St. Louis. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, Lutz is the answer. I mean, he's played he's played everywhere, sort of literally, uh, and and I think yeah, ticks a lot of the boxes. So I'm with you. He was my number one. My only other answer, like, and it kind of I have two, and they both sort of violate my own explanation of what a journeyman is because both of them have had success. I just think the number of times they've moved stands out to me. Christian Vieri. Being a big one, moving 15 times in an 18-year career, or 15 different clubs, I should say, in an 18-year career. And Robbie Keane, that one maybe is a little bit more, I don't know, debatable. What do you make of Robbie Keane's career? Would you consider him a journeyman or just a player who moved to his boyhood club multiple times? Uh, I would I would consider him a journeyman. I don't know how many clubs he's played for, but he's definitely, he is in the journeyman category. And he just rams it home because, as you say, he treats every club as, uh, this is my boyhood club, kiss the badge, let's do some finger guns and cartwheels. Yeah, of course, including uh, ATK Football Club in India. I think that's one of his boyhood clubs. That is the final club he played for. But it is Lutz. Lutz is always going to be the answer. So I think you hit the nail on the head, Mr. Bailey. Yay! Robbie Keane <laughs> played in India. I didn't even realize that. For oh, one God. season, it looks like. That's what Wikipedia <laughs> tells me. Wikipedia would never lie. Uh, why we didn't, have. Why didn't we ahead. cover that on Weekend Review? That's what I want to know. I mean, we probably got some questions about why we haven't done that. And maybe we should. Maybe next week. Probably not, though. Uh, but for right now, Ryan, we still have listener questions to get to. But let's talk about today's sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Roman. Uh, talking about erectile dysfunction is not easy. Usually we can just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like, I lost my mojo. Baby. Again, if you're Austin Powers. Uh, or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day or I'm just not feeling it. Uh, I love reading this copy as though I have said these things. Uh, but I think my hesitation to read this copy shows why, like, what the problem is, is that we downplay things. We don't want to talk about it. It's, it's wrong to have issues. And so people don't deal with it. But with Roman, you can deal with it discreetly and easily, and that is very, very ideal. You're just having trouble with the copy, Taylor, because you've never lost your mojo. You're the mojoiest <laughs> person I know. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation. I have a procedure on- to have my mojo stored, and then I can add more later. It's a whole thing. That is a plot line in Austin Powers 2, isn't it? I'm pretty I think sure it's, it is. It might be. It might isn't be. It, it's like a mojo is a liquid that he has, like... I'm going to get sued. I'm going to get sued now. That's not good. While I contemplate my legal status, Ryan, why don't you continue? (laughs) With Roman, you can get a free (laughs) online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. Gratis shipping, baby. The whole process is straightforward. It's simple and it's discreet. 
That is right. So you can go to GetRoman.com slash TSS. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS. One more time, Ryan Bailey. GetRoman.com slash TSS. That was that was sing-songy. That's third singing of the day. I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you very much to Roman for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you to Credible for sponsoring today's episode. Credible is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. I really, really appreciate what Credible.com is doing because when my wife and I were looking at her student loan refinancing options, I just put in Google student loan refinancing options, and it was a whole bunch of different things that I didn't know to trust. If you don't want to do that and don't really trust yourself to do the in-depth research, that's where I would say Credible definitely can help things, uh, help simplify things. So this is something that is quite common in the UK, Taylor, having trusted sources to aggregate the best deals for you. It's not as common over here, which is why I really appreciate something like Credible.com, which helped you, as you say, find uh, the best solutions for your student loan debt. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit from Credible.com. Lots of benefits, which include a lower rate, which uh, you could which allow you to save on interest, and lower your monthly payment too, which means more money in your little pocket. You can get <laughs> debt-free much faster. As a result, you can consolidate all your student loan bills in one tidy, neat little place. This gives you serious peace of mind. Credible.com customers have given awesome reviews about how much better their financial lives have been after refinancing. Makes it easier, be- Taylor. Just makes it I easy. believe they will save you enough money that you can move the money from your little pocket to a larger pocket if you want to. That's the type of service they're providing. Uh, please visit Credible.com slash TSS. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS. And when you refinance your student loans via Credible, they will give you a $200 gift card. Fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you are eligible for. Again, that is Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations, Inc., not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash TSS for details. Thank you to Credible for sponsoring this episode. Thank you, as ever, to people who send in listener questions. I really do love the listener questions shows. But Ryan, I'm glad you get to do one because... It does bring about lots of different things that I wouldn't otherwise really be thinking about, including our next question from Matt Koss, who asks, do you think Zidane will be the next coach of the French national team? I don't know. <laughs> that is a good answer. And that's about where I am with it as well. Why, why do yeah. you say you don't know? I'm sorry to be so glib about it, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sounds like a very good fit. I can see where Matt Koss is coming mm-hmm. from, certainly here, because uh, having a former player, a legendary French player, come and coach a team who's obviously got now has a track record of proven success in tournaments, which is what the French national team want to do, win things in tournaments. And what some, something that he does better than arguably any, any other manager at the top level, perhaps... Um, maybe Diego Simeone excluded, is command respect. And I think that's really important when in a national team setup because you can coach these players all day long, but you get limited amount of time with a national team. And it's the sort of the ethos that you create and the respect that you garner, yeah. I think that goes a really long way in, in those one of those great intangibles of this game that we all love. So I think that Zidane 
could very likely be. I don't know if Didier Deschamps has anything to say about this, whether he thinks he's going to leave this job anytime soon. But uh, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm that's somewhere. That's my good answer for you. Sorry. That's a, that's a fair answer because I mean I, I would appreciate that over taking a hard and fast position that you don't really believe in. But I I, I get where this question is coming from because uh, I think there have been some rumors that the French FA would like him to succeed uh, Deschamps. I think Deschamps himself might have said that he won't be surprised if Zidane one day takes over the national team. And I think there's mm-hmm. reason for that to happen. The reasons you've already mentioned, but then like look at the successes he's had with Real Madrid so far, the Champions League like victories show that he knows how to manage a knockout competition that's kind of important when it comes to international soccer um obviously can manage the the high profile names can get his tactics right when he needs to so i think there's a lot of reason why it will happen one day the thing is i don't know if it happens soon because Deschamps is there i believe his contract is through the 2022 world cup uh if it goes well maybe they renew that if it doesn't maybe they don't but in that time period I don't know if Zidane is going to leave Real Madrid because given that he's in his second stint and given that they seem the more stable of the massive clubs in in Spain, like I, I just don't see him bailing or getting sacked in any time in the next couple seasons. I think he's there as long as he wants to be there. That's my feeling, although I would have said that after his first stint and that went the way it did. But I, I think the timeline yeah. maybe doesn't make it as much of a certainty that he'll take over after Deschamps. So maybe one day, on, but I wouldn't say that, the next one. On that note, Taylor, if mm-hmm. the timelines don't quite match up, say if France have one of their world-famous meltdowns at the next yeah. tournament, which is perfectly possible, there's one other person I think could slip right into that job and do a wonderful job. Raymond Dominic. Arson. Raymond uh, Dominic, and he can pronounce. Uh, he can propose to another partner after crashing out of a tournament in spectacular fashion. Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger is the guy. Uh, I think I listened to an interview with him this week on another podcast where he was sort of. He said he'd never go back to Arsenal, which I agree he should, he should never do. But it doesn't sound like he's necessarily done with the game. And if the call from France came up, I think Wenger would accept the charges. I will say this, Mr. Bailey. I have in my notes. Wenger, question mark? Uh, I did look him up. He is, I believe, currently 70 years old, uh, which is not the youngest of ages, but we know that international managers can manage probably longer than club club managers because it's less demanding day to day. And I'm with you. Tony was like 108. It's fine. So I think, yeah, exactly. So yeah, then Wenger's has 38 more years. Uh, and I, I'm with yeah. you. That that one does make sense because he'd be like 72 around 2022. I think that, that gives him like a World Cup cycle at least. I think he, you're right that he wants to still be in the game. So I, I'm with you. I'm going to go Arsene Wenger and then maybe Zidane after that. We'll have to see. Très bien. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll ask the next one as well because it's pretty much geared towards you, Ryan. Trevor McDonald asks slash says, I became an AFC Wimbledon fan uh, since 2016. I'm going to say in 2016. Uh, after Sports with John is his Twitter handle, became an owner. I know about the crazy gang and some of the more overarching history of the club. What is some of the more granular history and stories about the club that only people who grew up in the culture of AFC Wimbledon would know? Uh, this may come as a breaking, shocking piece of news. I did not, but I believe Ryan Bailey did. So, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and talk for a while, and I'll be quiet. 
thank you very much, Tanya. Thank you, Trevor, for the question. Thank you for becoming an AFC Wimbledon fan. Nice to have uh, as many fans as we can on the book. Sports with John, by the way, of course, is John Green, the famous author, who um, sponsors a stand. He did sponsor a stand at the old Kings Meadow Stadium. I believe he's going to sponsor a stand at our new stadium as well, um, uh, which will be having its first game on November 3rd. No other important things happening on that date. And uh, it was quite amusing when you went to Kings Meadow because the, the stand he sponsored would just have the names of all his books and his movies just plastered all over it, which was fun. I really uh, appreciate those... that you get the November 3rd thing in there almost every show. I really do. Thank you, Ryan. It's quite topical. It's relatively topical, yeah, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was trying to dig out some some interesting facts about Wimbledon and their history that might be interesting, not just uh, for Trevor, but for uh, for the general listener. One of the things that always sticks with me is that when Wimbledon were in the Premier League, so from its inception until uh, 2000, uh, the training ground was a public park. The training ground you could walk onto, you could walk your dog while the Premier League players were doing their thing. And the Premier League players would sometimes have to watch out for whatever the dog may have left behind. And like, it meant that we could go with impunity and watch training. Whenever we wanted, and it was just off of the like off of a, a, the a, a quite a busy road in South London, and you just pull in, and <laughs> there was a clubhouse which they sh- often had to share with like the community as well. So that's kind of how humble this team was, and you compare that to the fortresses that teams train in these days. It's quite humbling. Um, if you want an interesting fact about AFC Wimbledon, we know that the, well. I know, and I'm telling you that we were founded in 2002 after the whole messiness of the team being franchised out to Milton Keynes, which is a, t- a town around 60 miles north of London, which doesn't sound like a lot to the American listener, but there's probably 40 or 50 teams in that distance. So it's quite a, a, um, a, a big move for an English club, and it's never happened again. It will never happen again. It's never happened since, sorry. Uh, when uh, the day that it was announced that an F- the FA had passed on the decision to allow the move to a three-man independent panel, uh, they allowed to, uh, Wimbledon to relocate because they didn't want to take the decision themselves. It went to an arbitration panel. Well done, FA. You are fantastic. Wimbledon fans decided to form a new club that day in a pub on Wimbledon Common called the Fox and Grapes. So the, the new club, which you see now in League One, was formed in a pub on the very day that the old club was arguably killed. So I think that's quite an interesting little thing, little nugget for you. And um, we started, the new team, AFC Wimbledon, started in the ninth tier, the Combined Counties League. Uh, and it started with just over 200 people literally showing up in a park, Wimbledon Common, not the uh, place where the old team used to train, showing up in a park to have trials. So that's how this team started, literally from the ground with fans in a pub. Look who we've got to now, back in the league, in the third tier in League One. I'm almost tearing up. I'm very proud of this team. Some other fun facts for you. Uh, We have had a celebrity player for AS Wimbledon. I'm not sure how famous he is in the US, but MC Harvey was part of a UK... um, R&B sort of garage uh, group called So Solid Crew. Uh, he was quite famous for being in trouble with the law occasionally. My silence tells us. you how famous they were. <laughs> you can look him up if you like to. He's had a, a fairly uh, uh, interesting life. He's been an actor. He's been a, um, uh, a musician, as I say. He's, he's done stage and screen. He's done some time uh, at, at Her Majesty's Pleasure, so we say. And he's also um, yeah played for Wimbledon as fullback. And that was a very entertaining era where we'd get fans of his kind of turn up for our games when we were sort of down in those non-league um, uh uh, periods. Now, I mentioned earlier when we talked about LinkedIn, Taylor, that I looked up the previous 
chairman of Wimbledon, the man who was tasked with the job of moving the club away from its roots in Wimbledon and finding an alternate stadium, which uh, ended up being in Milton Keynes. His name is Charles Coppel. He's a very uh, immoral and evil man. But he, and he's on LinkedIn if you want to look him up. Uh, he actually campaigned to not have... There was, we're building, we have built a stadium in Wimbledon. It's on the same street where the original stadium was. Uh, he campaigned to make sure the local council council would not allow the new stadium to be built. He sent people door to door with talking points to make sure that they wouldn't have a stadium built back in the place where it belongs. This is the chairman of the club organizing and doing this. There is there is evidence that this happened. So that's a crazy, crazy wow. thing of a chairman working in the interests of the team and its move, but very much against the interests of the team and its community, which I find stunning. My my Apple Watch, I have to tell you, j- just told me that it seems as though I'm stressed and I need to breathe more. That made me stressed <laughs> out, that that story. <laughs> it's a, like... I can't believe I, that. When this happened, uh, honestly, Ted, this is around the turn of the century, I fell out of love with soccer for a few years. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to watch it anymore. I fell out of love with it, and it happened. Every woman got me back into it, obviously. But the hurt of going to that stadium every week, every two weeks, and having protests and having your team ripped away from you like that, having something that was so close to my family and my community torn away, it was just so painful, and I just didn't want anything to do with it anymore. So I, I don't know. I went and I did art. I did actually. I did archery for a while. That's what I did with my weekends. That's how British I am. Anyway, um, no, no, when, no. We're not just moving on. What? No. I, I got into <laughs> archery when I was younger. Yeah, no, that's not an explanation, discussing. Ryan. <laughs> like, like I, w- w- were you raised in the 1700s? How do you just get into archery? So whereas archery might be a sort of a more rugged, um, in-the-woods kind of pursuit here, it's something that's kind of done in England on pristine lawns with targets and all very proper and you have to wear Ah. a certain shade of green if you don't wear this certain shade of green you're not allowed to compete it's all very proper and very crusty and there's a reason i don't do it anymore is linen involved (laughs) i feel like linen had to be involved most certainly felts okay linens and yeah it's all (laughs) it's all very proper and i think the kind of middle-aged men it attracts and and then just me turning up as a teenager very we have we have situation we do have more lister questions to get to. We might kick those next week because I now want to ask you, you live in North Carolina. <laughs> you have an yeah. archery background. Have you gone yeah. bow hunting? Have you taken that up? Do you enjoy the archery to this day? I would, but I, would, I wouldn't go hunting like animal hunting. I never yeah. did that. I was just targets. Uh, so I've done what we used to call field archery where you'd have like polystyrene animals in the woods. Uh, that's a lot of fun, but it means you lose a lot of arrows because they disappear into the woods. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I have never gone hunting either, so I'm with you on that one. Uh, a couple other questions. Did you say the fox and the grapes? Fox and grapes. It's a fun name, isn't it? I it, don't know why it's called that. I, I, I was wondering. Hound is usually the pub name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a fox um, and hound in Richmond, I believe, or at least we did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love British British pub names are great, except for when they're... What's the company that makes fake pubs that seem like they're authentic but aren't? Weatherspoons? Yeah, it's the one. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not one of those, I'm guessing? No, no, it'll be a proper one, and it's in Wimbledon, so it'll be reasonably nice as well. Right. Uh, one, I'll give you one more yeah, Wimbledon fact, by the way, because it relates to pubs. Uh, Wimbledon's greatest day was the FA Cup final in 1988, where we beat Liverpool 1-0. This is a Liverpool who were even more dominant than the current Liverpool. They were, you know, conquerors of Europe, very, very don- dominant on a domestic front as well, and tiny little Wimbledon beat them. The players the night before 
went to the Fox and Grapes pub. They got um, they uh, the manager Bobby Gould allegedly gave them two hundred pounds because to get him out of his hair. They went to the Fox and Hounds pub, and there's there's lots of apocryphal stories about fans walking in. There's one particular story that a player told about a fan walking in with his dog, and the dog had a Wimbledon kit on, and all these incredulous fans going, "Guys, it's 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 eleven p.m. the night before the FA Cup final. Do you think you should go to bed?" <laughs> nah. and, uh, well, apparently, you know, Liverpool would ha- had their nice, healthy meal, went to bed, and they lost. There you so go. take from that what you will, guys. Take from that what you will. I think English football took a lot of that lesson for a while. Uh, and then Arsene Wenger, <laughs> the aforementioned, comes in. Um, you mentioned okay. that training, the kind of openness of that training facility. Mm-hmm. Do I remember correctly that, that there was a player that was discourteous to you at that training facility, or am I making that up? No, nope, you remember correctly. His name All was right. Vincent Jones. Uh, oh, Vinny! <laughs> Vinny Jones. Oh, so on the last day of training each year, we'd, a, lot, a lot more fans would go because the, fan, uh, the, ki- the, the players would give away their training kit and you can, they'd like give you their shirt or give you their uh, sweatshirt or maybe a boot or two if you're lucky if they were changing sponsors. And I very politely asked Vinny Jones if I could um, maybe have something of his, like his, he was wearing like a pullover sweatshirt thing. And he's like, nope. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think I maybe I'll ask the follow-up. He's like, nope. And then as he walks off, an, a, a young lady asked him for something. And he was like, oh, I'm terribly sorry, darling. I, 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 I just can't give this away at the moment. I do hope you have a wonderful day. Wow. <sighs> Vinny, never, never forgave you for that. I mean, I can't, I can't say that surprises me so much. But I hope, that, I hope that he one day hears this and reconciles with you and, and gives you lots of Wimbledon gear. That's my hope for you. Uh, right. So he did donate, to his credit, he donated his FA Cup final winner's medal to Axel Wilden, and we have it uh, on display, and we'll do it at the new stadium. Oh, nice. There we go. All right. So it all, it all comes about in a happy way. That, that's good. Go. Ryan, do you want to do, uh, do you have time for one more question? For you? Of course. All right. Let's go with Craig Jonathan Muir. Final question of the day. What is one thing that is pretty minor that infuriates you when watching a football game? My friends is foul throws. Mine is substitutes not being ready to come on a pitch when they are being subbed. So their T-shirt or shin guards aren't ready. Uh, what about us? I've got some good ones here. Foul throws right. is a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, throws not being taken in the correct place. Play, Number uh, one for me. Gaining a couple of yards is yep. a big one. Diving used to be my big one, Taylor, because uh, I've talked a lot about the mid-90s now, but sort of that was when diving kind of started coming in as a thing, certainly in the British game. David Ginola, when he was at Newcastle and Tottenham, was an outlier in that he dived with impunity all the time. And uh, that really bothered me. And it bothered, I had a bee in my bonnet about it for a long time. And then even you look at, say, uh, Jordan Henderson against Belgium a few days ago, that kind of deliberate falling to the floor with very minimal contact it still doesn't sit quite right with me and it's done tactically these days so that that does kind of infuriate me but i understand why it's done because it's to the letter of the law it's what the players have to do um but i've got i've got two 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 main ones though do you want me to keep going uh, I'll just I'll get I'll do my minor ones as well. I, I had throw-ins being taken like 20 to 30 yards from where the ball went out of bounds. I that I don't know why that bothers me so much, but it's a thing I pay attention yeah. to. It's more a thing I like am just interested in. Like, really? That's where that's happening? Same goes for goalkeepers holding the ball for like 30 to 45 seconds. It's always crazy to me when they will catch a cross or catch a shot, and then we'll get a replay of that shot from a couple of different angles, and we'll cut back, and the goalkeeper still has the ball. I don't know how that's <laughs> allowed, but it always sort of makes me very confused. So those are two minor ones. Let's hear your major ones. Uh, time-wasting. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there should be a delay of game rule similar to the NFL. Specifically, when your team's down, say in a cup competition, you're about to be eliminated, and the goalkeepers, oh, he's he's digging digging uh, a little a divot in the turf yep. with his boot. He puts the ball down. No, I think I'm going to take it from the other side of the box. Moves it over, has a little stretch, and you know, take, kicks it. That infuriates me. And substitutions as well. The very slow <clears throat> walking off of the field. Oh, that really gets me. But uh, <laughs> my do- my. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say my big one is uh, putting your when players, defenders mainly, putting their arm up and appealing for offside mm-hmm. or handballs in the box. Yeah, what good does it do? What good has it ever done? I remember a bit playing when I was playing in like as a kid, there were, and watch and there was defenders in our team would put their arms up when they thought a ball was offside. Just the, the, the linesman of the day just laughing, saying, you don't have to do that. I can see whether there's an offside or not. And I think that attitude should be put on to the, to, to the professional game as well. I know there's an argument that you could influence psychologically a referee into a decision if you show that kind of thing, if you show a movement to say you believe it was offside. There's some kind of influence there. But in the days of VAR, I don't think it really applies. No. And the worst thing of this, Taylor is not just appealing for something, but their arms up in, um, in incredulousness that defenders do. Manchester United have been doing this a lot lately, and I think I spoke about this on a re- weekend review with you, possibly after the Tottenham game, where there was a goal which Tottenham scored where every Man United player in the box simultaneously mm-hmm. put their arms up in the air, looking at each other as if to say, what? And it just, it, to me, that's like shirking responsibility. That's like, that's oh, just no. everybody's yeah. fault except mine. That bothers me. That is a thousand percent what it's about. Yeah, because it's it's I think if you approach it from an amateur perspective where you don't have cameras and replays, you can sort of be like, oh, no, I was calling for this. I was the one. And usually the person who yells the loudest is the one who's most responsible. And that is the only part of the hand in the air that I like is every now and then you get that player who kept Harry Kane on by five yards and then tried to jump forward and is now way (laughs) out of the play and is at fault. And then they put their hand in the air like maybe maybe I can get away if I call for it. So that's the only time I don't (laughs) mind that. But I'm with you. I find that to be a sort of outdated thing for the exact reason you mentioned. Uh, and then my other one that I really – I think I hate sort of universally, but there are certain teams that do it more than others, is just the swarming of the official. Uh, sometimes I get it. You're frustrated. If there's a really bad tackle and it should be a red card, you're going to vent your frustration. But then there are other teams, and some can probably guess who I'm talking about, who will surround the referee all the time for every single decision. And again, I think that is – a little bit psychological. You're trying to get in their head, show them that you're mad, show them that they're going to have to argue every single call. So maybe they're less likely to make a few. Maybe they feel bad and give you like just a makeup call that they let something go. I've heard from many referees that that is not how they work, but I still think Mm -hmm. that's the aim of that. And even if it is working or isn't, it's still just frustrating to see nine different people surround a referee and complain when it's like, yeah, it was a foul. The card's been given. Move on with your life. So those are that's my big one is the surrounding of the official. And I'm not even a referee. I have no vested interest. So we have ended this wonderful Q&A on a very curmudgeonly and grumpy uh, note, haven't we? In my day, throws were taken in the places they were supposed to be taken. Uphill, and in the snow. Swarmed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that just means I need to go have a nap. Uh, but so um, we're going to end on that note then as I go take a nap. Ryan Bailey, thank you for answering listener questions with me. It's been very, very fun. And I look forward to talking about the weekend's action with you on Monday. Always a pleasure. Never a choice.